When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. So welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I take the questions of the day and do my best to answer them. And today, um, we've got kind of a backlog of episodes. Um, I've recorded some each morning and then forgot to uh, finish them up. So um, here they are in just one after the other. I hope they make some thematic sense. I'm not sure. Um we have the unfolding story of Hezekiah, Rob Shaka, um, as well as St. Jerome or Hieronymus, who happens to be the name of my third born son. So enjoy or learn or I hope this helps you take a nap if you're trying to do that as well. All right, enough of the self-deprecating humor. And here we go. This um, lengthy reading of this restoration of the true worship of the true God in Jerusalem is a reminder that not everything's perfect in church life and not everything was perfect in the life of the people of God in the Old Testament. Um, the, The time of Solomon was marked by the building of the temple and consecrating the temple and keeping the feasts and transferring all those desert sacraments, um, desert rituals, desert holidays that they had celebrated and and started celebrating in the wilderness and then moving them into the place in Jerusalem, the solid, fixed place where God would embody his presence with his people. The temple was a place where heaven and earth met. Um, the, The inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, the outer court even, all of the, the temple worship was meant to be on earth as it is in heaven. This comes from the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this was the same uh, reason the temple was built, to create on earth a mirror image of what is happening in heaven in the worship of God. And yet it had fallen on hard times. Uh, A couple times in this passage is mentioned that the priests... Uh, weren't that interested in consecrating themselves. To be a priest in this time was to be part of the tribe of Levi. It was a hereditary priesthood uh, passed down from parents to children, fathers to sons. And generally speaking, most people, from what I've, I understand, although we don't have like every story of every marriage in this time, uh, that tribes generally married in they kept their marriages inside their respective tribes. I'm sure there's a million exceptions to this um, from that time, but most Levitical priesthoods were part of the tribe of Levi and their parents were mom and dad. And then they had a baby. Uh, John the Baptist is one of these. He is of a Levitical tribe. Um, Although the fact that he's related to Jesus, who is not of the tribe of Levi Um, is one of those conundrums of biblical history. Um, And it shows that people like today have their rules and then they have what they actually do, Uh, especially when it comes to love and marriage and romance and things. Um, People don't always stick uh, with their prescribed procedure. But um, 
the the priests not consecrating themselves points to a deeper problem, a problem that somehow these priests are leading worship of some kind for some sort of and generating some sort of income from it through the sacrifices that they brought, the animals and things, but they're not consecrating themselves. They are reaping the benefits of the priesthood without putting the work in, the real work, the work of holiness. And so uh, what happens, Hezekiah as the king, he's not a priest, he's a king, has to kickstart things by actually starting the worship of the of the true God through Passover. He announces we're going to have Passover and nobody comes. Nobody's interested. Have you ever started a something you thought would be a good thing for the world or for your church or whatever and people weren't interested? <laughs> uh, Hezekiah is literally the king of all of Judah and only a few people from like two or three tribes show up. Um, pretty disappointing. But what, what Hezekiah is doing is he's not just calling people from his own tribe, the tribe of Judah. He is calling people from the tribes that have split. They have gone astray. They have split the kingdom in two. He's calling people from the northern tribes as well into this covenant renewal. And they're not that interested in what's going on in Jerusalem. And yet some of them show up and the, their presence in Jerusalem to worship God through the Passover is noticed by the priests who are busy doing their own thing and they go and consecrate themselves and then a bunch of people show up to get consecrated a couple of them and the way this was done was the same way Moses did it Moses uh, sacrificed the sacrificial lamb which was done by placing your hands on the head of the lamb and reciting the liturgy the words of God um, that God told them in the in the Old Testament, in the Law of Moses, to recite. Um, usually something about sin, their own sin. Um, and then they, they would take a knife and cut the throat of the lamb, and the blood would drain out. If you think this is kind of gross, um, if you're not a vegetarian, this is how all of the food that you eat and I eat <laughs> is made. Um, but they would hold that lamb while its life went out of it a very visceral symbol of sin and sacrifice and what life what life really is about. Uh, the Hebrew saying that is passed down through the Old Testament is the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. That's why how you kill an animal is very important. Uh, you do not hunt an animal. You don't shoot it with a gun or an arrow. You very carefully cut its throat so the blood goes out. You don't, you don't eat the blood. That's a big deal. Most um, people groups around the world would blood was a very special like thing, and they would put it in puddings and pies. And English people probably still do this kind of stuff today, but that's not how you do it. The blood, the life is in the blood. So the blood becomes, um, yes. And thank you, Doc. The um, Halal method is same as kosher. Um, halal is what Islamic people will uh, must have their meat prepared halal methods, which is usually involving the draining of the blood uh, when they when they kill an animal. And Jewish people have the same prescriptions today. 
Um, and they, they go back to the law of Moses and how to prepare this feast. So the blood is drained and it's kept in these sacred bowls. The bowls were cone shaped. Um, they look like an upside down traffic cone um, or a drinking Viking drinking horn or powder horn. So you couldn't just set them down on the table and forget about them. You had to carry them. And the blood was put in there. And then the hyssop branches were brought out. Hyssop being a short shrub, kind of like, um, what's that plant that grows around here? Uh, rosemary, kind of like that. And you dip that in the blood and, you sh and that blood is sprinkled on the people. This is how the, the cleansing and renewal of the covenant is done. This is what Moses did with the people when he consecrated the people. He spattered them with blood, um, the blood of the covenant, the blood of the sacrifice, pointing to the deeper reality through the symbol of blood that this is a blood covenant. This is going to cost someone's life. In fact, this covenant will cost someone's life. That is the image of the Passover lamb. Just as God delivered Egypt, the, the people of God from, the, from slavery in Egypt, through the blood of the firstborn, the dead firstborn children and animals of Egypt are killed. And that is the event that kicks off the Passover exodus, where God, where the people are finally released by Pharaoh. So this Passover lamb becomes a symbolic of someone or something, some creature that releases people from slavery and enslavement. And so um, this renewal of the covenant, it starts out with, we were slaves in Egypt, this, this, um, this story of their salvation. Jesus, when he is killed at Passover, um, and John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is often portrayed as a lamb, the Passover lamb himself. Some scholars have said that the moment Jesus dies on the cross is the the moment where the Passover lambs were slaughtered in Jerusalem. Not sure about that. It's hard to know when the Passover was on the night Jesus, or the, the weekend that Jesus was killed. Um, was Thursday night the Passover meal? Um, was Friday the Passover meal? It's hard to say historically what was happening at the time. John says it's the Passover. Other, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke say it's another meal. But it's a Passover meal or a pre-Passover meal the communion supper. So this lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world is renewed. This covenant is renewed here by Hezekiah, who's calling all the people. The priests are so embarrassed that people showed up for Passover, something they hadn't been doing. You'd think they would have kept Passover. It's a pretty big deal being delivered from Egypt, but they don't. They let it slip away. The worship of other gods is far more interesting and far more compelling for practical reasons. The um, Passover is not an economic holiday in the way that pagan feasts were. The pagan feasts of the Canaanites uh, that were absorbed into the, uh, and practiced by Solomon's wives and then eventually by Solomon and then by all the other kings that come after him, they are all about fertility, the fertility of the crops, and the fertility of people. Uh, most of it involves some sort of sexual element. And so they're, they're kind of like a party in some ways that involves people connecting in that way, but also a way of saying that this will make the crops grow. 
Every year we plant these seeds and we don't really know if they're going to grow. There might be something wrong with the soil. There might be bad weather. Uh, lots of things can happen. So we want to guarantee that these crops will be productive and we'll have a huge harvest. That's the only way we're going to survive the winter. It's the only way we're going to actually gain economic prosperity so that we can defend ourselves against our enemies. In other words, have he enough healthy babies to grow up to be fighters and people that will have babies themselves. And the only way to do it is to produce enough crops to feed everybody so that they're healthy enough to reproduce again. Um, very, very le basic level of subsistence that we as Americans don't really get really very well. So these other gods were far more compelling, far more practical. Um, and, and so their worship of these other gods became uh, the standard of what people did. And they had neglected Passover. Well, Passover is back and Hezekiah has inaugurated it. Um, and then there's these people that show up late. They show up late for the festival and they say, we want to participate too. And they go through the whole ritual, but they weren't consecrated. And so uh, they pray. Um, Hezekiah, acting as a priest, not a king at this point, prays to God saying, please sanctify these people too, even though they weren't here when the priest sanctified everybody. And God hears him and God sanctifies the people. So it shows that God is always looking for worshipers who show up. For, for whatever reason and whatever time. If they're late, that's fine. They're still there. If they didn't do the ritual right, that's still okay. God is looking for the heart. God is always saying it's the heart that matters. And it doesn't always have to be the way it's supposed to go. Sometimes it takes a different path. And so this festival happens. The covenant is renewed. They sacrifice a thousand bulls, 7,000 sheep and goats. Um, it's a huge barbecue, and everybody feasts. Everybody has plenty to eat. It's a sign of God's abundance, of the abundance of the covenant. And it says, we celebrated this Passover in a way that we haven't for almost 100 or more years since Solomon was king. So this is the renewal of the covenant, and this is what gets the Jewish people through the next 500 years. Um, it is the celebration of Passover. When the, when the judgment of God finally comes and they're taken to Babylon, they remember to celebrate Passover every single year. They don't forget that. By the time they come back to the land and the, and the world of Jesus is born in the land of, of, of Palestine, Israel, Judah, they are celebrating Passover without fail every single year, no matter what, even if they don't have anything. Even if they don't have enough food, they still celebrate Passover, reminding each other that they were slaves in Egypt and God delivered them. So when Jesus comes along, Passover is back in style. It's back in swing. They're still celebrating. And this is the great joy of Passover, the joy of worshiping God. There's joy in Jerusalem again. And Hezekiah, um, through his trying this, he just tries it. He doesn't know if he'll be successful. And at first he isn't. But he brings it back, and there is much rejoicing. So we thank God for the renewal of the covenants in our lives. Um, the renewal of the covenant of grace, 
the covenant that Jesus made with us on the cross, saying that I love you, I'm saving you, you're going to be with me forever, I'll never leave you or forsake you. This is the covenant Jesus makes with us through his own blood on the cross. And we are sanctified not through the sprinkling of blood, but through the sprinkling of the waters of baptism. When we shake the water on you, it is a reminder, it's a renewal of that covenant, a cleansing renewal of that covenant, saying today's a new day, today's a new start. This is a, a time, this is the, the new chance to, be, to know that you are loved, to live in that love. When people know they're loved, they act a lot better. Um, that we act a lot better when we know we're loved. We act with a lot of grace and joy and, and um, generosity when we know we're loved. And it's hard to, to remember that all the time. It's hard for these people to remember that all the time. But these, the covenant renewal is meant to say, God loves you. God's not giving up on you, no matter what happens. Amen. I've never had many experiences with angels that I know of. Um, we know from the book of Hebrews that people have had many experiences with angels. They just didn't always know it. But I think if you had an experience with Michael, the archangel, you would know it. It would be pretty obvious that you were being rescued by someone who is really powerful. Michael the archangel, arch being first, it means first, um, or really first, like archbishop um, or other arch, arch kind of words. But archangel is that the top tier of angels. And in Daniel's book, this description of Michael the archangel, who does battle on God's behalf in the heavenly realm, is a powerful image of comfort, especially to people who are in exile. Uh, Michael sorts out who is written in the book of life and who isn't. Michael is there on the day of resurrection. We often think of the resurrection as being a really Christian thing that only Christians believe in, but it was an idea that was in the Old Testament uh, before Jesus was born. Many Jewish people at the time of Jesus believed in the resurrection. The classic split between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the two groups that we meet in the Gospels and we meet in other Jewish writings of the time, uh, had different views on the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, and the Pharisees did. The idea of a resurrection, that people who have died will come back to life, is a lot like the belief in angels. There's really, it's really hard to prove. It's really hard to talk about in any intelligible way or systematic way, the way we talk about butterflies and birds and cows and dogs and cats. Um, angels are harder to quantify. The descriptions of angels vary from a person, like a human person, a man, in the shape of a man. We have angel sightings in the Bible where people appear as men. And we have angel sightings that appear to be like UFOs, a wheel within a wheel with many eyes looking out, windows, if you will. Angels seem to be able to sort of do whatever they want when it comes to how they appear. 
But the most important thing about them is that they do God's work. They're messengers for God. And not just messengers, but they're messengers who pack a punch. They're messengers who sometimes intervene in human affairs, in human lives. Um, and this ultimate work of the angels is to aid in the resurrection. Numerous times it says the angels are the ones who gather all those who have died back uh, to life. And I don't know like, if Michael the Archangel relates to your spiritual life very much. For some Christians, angels have a big part to play and others, it do, and others they don't. Um, but for me, the Michael, St. Michael and all angels, especially Michael, is the patron saint of paratroopers and police officers and a number of other people who do the work of protection. And this is the difference between human beings who do the work of protecting people and the work of angels. Uh, often when people have power, the power of life and death, we use it to benefit ourselves. This has been proven in every page of human history. Whenever you put, give someone a gun or a sword or a cannon or a battleship or a jet, uh, there's a moment in which they might use it to protect the innocent, to protect the weak, and then they might use it to get what they want and to benefit only themselves. And the patronage of Michael for all these killers, people that wield the power of life and death, is that Michael does exactly what God wants Michael to do um, and nothing else, not anything for Michael's own personal advancement. <clears throat> and this is the missing piece. No matter how many police officers we hire um, in our cities, no matter how many um, armies we build and navies and Marine Corps and air forces we build, the same human problems seem to always come back, that power has a corrupting influence. And here's Michael standing there, the ultimate power in the universe as far as effective power, power that is used um, here and there across human history. Is Michael is a restrained warrior, someone who is under the discipline and lordship of God. And when you picture Jesus coming back, um, we do say this in our creed every day, and we say it in every Sunday, he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. The vision that that comes from is a vision of Michael and all the angels coming with Jesus. When Jesus walked on this earth, he walked alone. His companions were these 12 followers and Mary Magdalene and the other Marys and sometimes his mother Mary and some other followers that were with him. But when uh, he is crucified, when he is being led to his crucifixion, he says, I could call legions of angels to come and save me. So the vision of Jesus on earth is, a, is an angel list Jesus. There's only a couple times where angels show up in his life. That is when he comes out of the desert after fasting and not drinking for 40 days and 40 nights. And the angels serve him food and water. They care for him. Um, and, and so he is alone, except for those few moments um, where the angels take care of him. But when he comes again, he's going to come in the power and his glory. And the angels are going to be with him. So this is how we show up in the world, too. The angels in our lives are invisible. They are not people. Um, 
you could make a case that they are dead people sometimes, people that have died. I think the saints and angels get mixed up a few times and we mix them up. But really the angels are some sort of other order of being that is pre-human and, and even superhuman in many ways. And yet angels are curious about humans because we have this thing that they don't understand. And it's not sure what it is, but uh, it seems like angels uh, wonder about humans the way um, a robot might look at the human family they serve or something. Um, what is going on with them? They seem to be so chaotic, so driven by their passions and desires and get into all sorts of messes. And yet God loves them in a really deep and powerful way. God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to save them. The Holy Spirit fills them. And angels wonder about those things and are curious about those things and do God's work. So when you're scared, when you're fearful, when you're not sure what to do or if you'll make it or survive, remember that God's angels are with you. One of the distinct departures in the Protestant Reformation uh, from medieval Catholic theology, medieval Catholic theologians were generally um, convinced that everybody had their own guardian angel, just one. And a lot of the Protestant reformers, after reading the Bible, said, you know what? It looks like people have more than one guardian angel. Jesus said that children have more than one guardian angel. And I don't think we need less guardian angels the older we get. I think maybe we need more. So remember, you are surrounded by the angels, the communion of saints. And when we uh, celebrate the Eucharist, if you were to take us a, a picture of it, you should hold your phone straight up and down, not sideways, because the real relationship that's happening is an up and down relationship. It is the stairway to heaven that Jacob saw when he slept, the angels ascending and descending from, the, from earth to the throne of God. That is the relationship that we experience in the Eucharist, is that angelic, those angelic messengers on that stairway, on that ladder, going back and forth, giving us what we need, when we need it, at the very moment we do. The city is besieged by the Assyrians. The Assyrians live to the north of Israel, and they're besieging Jerusalem. Hezekiah is the king. He's a good king, one of the few. Uh, he is dedicated to restoring the worship of the temple. He's done that already. And now the Assyrians are here. The Assyrians uh, are most famous probably in history and archaeology for their pictures. On the walls of their palace, which have been unearthed, are depictions, stone carvings of soldiers skinning people alive and taking their skins and putting them up on the wall of the city. Now, that's pretty bad. Um, and these were commercials. These were advertisements um, for the whole world to see. We'll do this to you if you don't submit to us, if you don't follow what we say. The Assyrians spoke a language called Aramaic. They are the biggest group to do this. Uh, and you can see in the story, this guy, the Rabshakeh, which in the King James Bible, it's a name, Rabshakeh. Um, we call him Rob for short. Uh, in the NRSV and other newer translations, they think this might be a title. 
the Rabshaka. It's hard to know. In Hebrew and Greek, in a lot of languages, um, we would say the Susan or the David or the... Um, so you're not really sure if Susan is a title or a name, mm. personal name or a, a title. We would say the policeman, the mayor, the... You know, we do that in English with a title, but we don't do it with, um, with people's names. But they did that back then, so it's hard to know. But he does this trick... It shows you how good the Assyrians were. The Assyrians were really good. They, um, they had a guy, the Rabshakeh, come to Jerusalem, stand outside the wall, speak up at the wall so people could hear, and he doesn't speak to them in Aramaic, in his own language. He speaks to them in their language. Now, people spoke Aramaic. There were people in Jerusalem that spoke Aramaic, for sure. Merchants, diplomats, different people that were smart and study other languages but most people didn't and there right before this there's this account where he says um what language should we talk in and rabshaka says i'll speak in hebrew and the the guy on the wall says no 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 don't speak in hebrew i don't want people around here to hear what you're saying i want you to speak in aramaic we'll talk in aramaic and the guy says no i'm going to speak in hebrew and so everyone's hearing this the gossip has gone out in the city this is before obviously we say this a lot, before cell phones, before the internet, which meant that people told people. And it was just as effective, a way of spreading information in a closed area. Um, you couldn't spread it outside that closed area, but it's amazing how fast in a school, high school, information spreads when you hear something. And this would have been heard by a lot of people. And so they are using psychological warfare against the people of God, against Hezekiah and his people. Because they're saying, we're going to undermine your belief system. We're going to cause you to doubt the walls of this city, doubt your king, and especially doubt your God. Where are the people, and he names these civilizations they've conquered. Where are they today? They're Assyrians. And he says, if you surrender to us, you can go home to your vineyard, to your fig tree, to your cistern. You can go sit under your branch. And in a few months, we're going to come and we're going to deport you to another place. It'll be just as good, just as nice. You know, imagine trying to sell that to people. Hey, welcome. Imagine trying to sell that to people. Um, you know, we've got this other land for you that's just as good. You'll like it just as much. Welcome, welcome. The tab's open, so feel free to grab whatever. For you too, Patrick. Um, and so this is the offer. It's a terrible offer. But he says, if your God could protect you, your God would. And that's where it stands. And I think when it comes to temptation, because this is a temptation, a temptation to despair, a temptation to give up. Um, we've got to remember that the voices we're hearing are not God. The, the messages you're getting of, you know, this will be easier. Just go with this. This will be better. For you, it'll be better for everybody. Remember, we have the potential as humans to deceive ourselves. This, the possibility of self-deception is a real one. And I don't know about you, but I have a pretty good imagination. I have a pretty active thought life. I have a pretty good argumentative system in my head that will convince me of just about anything. And we're all, we all have that in our heads. And these people listening to this message, which is a good, compelling message. Do you want to live or do you want to die? Yeah, I want to live. Well, here's what you got to do. And Hezekiah 
now has this message. Um, sometimes you got to take a message to somebody else. This is what therapy is for. You go to your therapist, you say, you know, I really think I ought to do this. And the therapist listens and says, hmm, <laughs> you know, you're hearing that in your head. Maybe other people are telling you this in real life, but maybe that's not the whole truth. And this is true of the Assyrians, Rabshakeh's offer of deport, deportation. Maybe there's a problem with that. Maybe the land they're going to take you to isn't going to be that great. Have you ever thought about that? Oh, maybe I should think about that. Um, oh, and they're not going to let you worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob anymore. Oh, maybe I should have thought about that. And they're going to kill your king. Oh, maybe, you know. Um, what do the Assyrians want with us? Well, they want our stuff. They want everything we've worked for. They want everything. Um, maybe we shouldn't just give it to them. You know, this is what a good therapist or maybe a good friend, although friends, I'm a good friend sometimes, and I am also subject to self-deception because I want what I want, you know? And I, I also think when I hear situations, I think with my friends, hmm, how does this work for me? How, so a therapist, you know, and hopefully your priest will be objective in that too. But ultimately you've got to take stuff to God and say to God, what do you want me to do, God? What is the truth here of these messages I'm hearing of what I should do, what we should do, um, how I should act, how I should think? Um, God And God always answers. God's going to answer these people. Um, it's going to happen. And it's scary, but it's going to happen. So when you're faced with temptation, remember, it's scary, but you've got to check that information with someone you can trust. Because in our own minds, Rob Shaka's offer is always convincing. It'll always convince us to despair. But Rob Shaka is not God. He is not even the king of Assyria. He's just a guy talking. And there's a lot of those guys out there. Is he a prophet? St. Hieronymus or St. Jerome put up a picture of him on the screen here. My favorite picture of Hieronymus is a picture of a lion in Hieronymus. This is the weirdest lion you've ever seen. This is like a person in Europe who'd never seen a lion, who heard about a lion, who said, yeah. I'll draw, paint a lion. Sure, I yeah, I can do that. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, the story is while Jerome was teaching, his students, uh, a lion, a limping lion that had like a paw problem came in to the classroom and all the students fled in terror and he stayed and got the thorn out and uh, the lion kind of hung out there for a while. So hard to know what this story means. It was, it was written a long time after Jerome died. Uh, so it's hard to know, you know, what actually happened. But um, like a lot of the saints' stories, their interactions with animals are sort of the sign of their ability to transcend the violent dichotomy of life. That, you know, these are people acting through peace, not through violence. And animals recognize that, like the wolf of St. Francis and the lion of Jerome. But um, Jerome is a Roman. He lived in the time where Christianity is finally legal. 
and sort of becoming the official religion of the some of the upper classes of Rome. It was a, a religion of mostly enslaved people for a long time and really people at the bottom of society. And then suddenly it gets to become more popular in Rome, in the Roman world. And Jerome is one of those early uh, Bible scholars and theologians who uh, kind of took Christianity to the next level, if you will, to establish it in a way that it could endure through all the conquests and all the stuff that's about to happen in history. Um, he was a very witty guy. Um, he uh, was known to be really cantankerous. So if you know a cantankerous saint in your life, someone who's real grouchy but good, it's not so great to be grouchy and mean, but grouchy and good um, is a good thing sometimes. Um, and Jerome, he, he uh, wrote a lot about women. He never married, like most of the monks of his day um, and Bible teachers. But he um, was sponsored by a number of very prominent women in Rome who sort of, you know, took care of him and paid his way to go to Jerusalem to start a school there. Uh, and so he always wrote about how really the path to know Jesus the best is through the women that knew Jesus in his lifetime, like Mary and Mary Magdalene and, and other women who didn't have the same power and authority that um, Roman men had in that society, but were able to know Jesus in a really deep way. Um, he, he was the guy, up to this point, most of the teachers of the church didn't read Hebrew. Like Hebrew was the language the Old Testament is written in, and most of them had never studied Hebrew. Most famously is St. Augustine, who writes a ton of stuff about theology and sets the course of like Christian, Christian theology forever, famously did not know Hebrew. So when he's reading Old Testament Bible verses, he's reading them in a very, he's reading the, you know, them in Greek or, well, probably in Greek, which is a language he knew really well, but you know, it's just like anything. Could you really appreciate Shakespeare fully if you didn't know English? You could know, Shakespeare would be really cool in other languages. I'm sure it is. Kind of like, I, I watch TV shows all the time that are done in other countries. They're trans, you know, you read the subtitles on the screen, or maybe they're translated in English, but um, it's not quite the same as if I, you know, knew Danish or something, but I don't. So, you know, I have to do what I got to do. Um, but Jerome knows Hebrew. He studies it and he takes the Hebrew scriptures while he's in Jerusalem, living in this world where there's Jewish scholars around, there's Jewish people still there. Um, and there's a lot of other people there too. He, from Bethlehem, he writes the, translates the Bible into Latin. And we have the Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate is the common language, the vulgar language of the people. It's a Bible that was meant for everybody to read and study. Um, it's a really good translation of the Hebrew Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, this is the Bible that then gets picked up by the medieval church. And they believe it's like the only Bible you should read. <laughs> and of course, it's hard to learn Hebrew and it's kind of Jewish. And so the medieval church is real nervous about anything that's Jewish, even though like Jesus was a Jew, the whole Bible's Jewish people, you know, they very anti-Semitic. So Latin Vulgate becomes sort of the standard. But Jerome, I want to read some quotes to you from Jerome. Um, Begin now to be what you will be hereafter. He had a lot of witty quotes. Um, 
So if you're going to be in heaven with God, praising God the rest of your life, start now. Um, the face is the mirror of the mind, and eyes without speaking confess the secrets of the heart. A friend is long sought, hardly found, and with difficulty kept. It is idle to play the liar for an ass. <laughs> that was in an insult to one of his um, colleagues. <laughs> um, Jerome wrote a lot of really angry letters. Um, he would have been great on Twitter or Facebook, um, just posting away, taking everybody down. He would have been great on YouTube. Uh, I sense some performance art coming in your future. He, he really uh, could have pulled it off. Um, everything must have in it a sharp seasoning of truth. Um, a clergyman who engages in business and who rises from poverty to wealth and from obscurity to a high position, avoid as you would the plague. Good advice, I think. Um, it is still worse to be ignorant of your ignorance. And the last one, when the stomach is full, it is easy to talk of fasting. I like that one. You know, we're all real disciplined after a big meal. Like, wow, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna start this great diet, it'll be great. Um, <laughs> good time to start. And another favorite quote is, um, and this is kind of somber. He said, um, growing old, and Jerome did live a long time. He's one of the few saints to live a long time. Most of them died young. Um, he said, growing old is like being in a war. All your friends die. And I thought about that a lot over the years. That, that is one of the griefs of aging. Um, so let's be compassionate for people who um, are aging, and we all are aging, but people who get to that stage where friends start to die. That's a really hard stage in life. It's like being in a war. And it is the truth about aging is that you, as you get older, you lose a lot of your filters. <laughs> and I think you could, I think Jerome was one I of those. And the only filter Jerome has is his lion, and the lion doesn't say much. <laughs> so he's definitely, 